You can be seated. Good morning, and thanks for joining us this morning for worship at Trinity. Uh, Whether you're here in person or joining us on our live stream via Facebook, welcome. We're glad that you've chosen to spend some time with us on Sunday, uh, focusing our hearts on who God is, on his son, Jesus Christ, and on the glorious gifts that that gives to us as his people. My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, And this morning, we're going to be opening the Bible together, as we do every Sunday, uh, looking at the Gospel of Matthew at the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you have a copy of the Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to be finishing chapter 20 this morning and then starting into chapter 21. So we'll be looking at 20 verse 29 through chapter 21 verse 11. Uh, Here at Trinity, we love the Bible. We believe it's how God speaks to us, how we learn who he is, how we learn who we truly are, and how we relate to God, how we respond to him. Uh, And so we take time each week just working chapter by chapter, verse by verse through books of the Bible. Right now that has us in Matthew because we want to understand it in its context. We don't want to just hammer God's word to fit our agenda, our ideas, our perspective. We want our perspective to be shaped by what God says. And this has been the way we found to be the most helpful, to just go through bit by bit, understand what it meant in its original context to its original audience, and then apply that meaning to our lives today. Uh, So we're in 2029 this morning, and we're going to be talking, as we have many times throughout our study of Matthew's gospel, about identity about Jesus's identity, which has been a recurring theme in the book, a big deal for Matthew, wanting his readers to understand who Jesus is. Identity many times can be wrapped up in heritage. And sometimes a person's heritage, knowing who a person's father is, for instance, is not terribly insightful, right? If I were to stand here this morning and refer to myself as DJ, son of Denny, or others in the room as Mike, son of Russell, Nick, son of Boyd, it doesn't really give you a whole lot of insight into who we are. I mean, it's a piece of information you've learned, but it wouldn't strike you as particularly meaningful. You might think DJ thinks he's living in medieval Europe referring to people that way, but it's not going to learn, it's not going to teach you anything new. But sometimes that's different. Let's say that a few years ago, we were watching a college basketball game on TV between two small schools in Florida, and there was a player on screen named Jeffrey Jordan. But I didn't refer to him as Jeffrey Jordan. I referred to him as Jeffrey Jordan, son of Michael. Oh, well, that's a little bit more significant than just knowing my dad's name. That tells you something about a significant heritage that he has that on the basketball court means quite a bit. Well, this morning... We're going to be looking at two texts that might at first seem unrelated, but are actually tied together by the fact that Jesus is identified prominently in both of them as the son of David. So we're going to look this morning and we're going to think about what does that mean that Jesus was the son of David? What's the significance of that phrase in us understanding the identity of Jesus, who he is, what he came to do? So we're going to figure out what did it mean to the people in Jesus' day who said it. And we're going to learn something about his identity. And we're also going to learn about why we need to see him, why we need to shape our identity of Jesus and trust in him the same way that these people did because of this expression of Jesus, the son of David. So let's dig into the text this morning, Matthew 20, verse 29, and then we'll start studying these truths together. Beginning in 29, it says, And as they went out of Jericho, this is Jesus and the disciples, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. 
And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. That's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray and we'll look at it together. Our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we come to these texts this morning, we ask that you would help us to know you more fully because of what we see here. Teach us, shape us, mold us to make us more like Christ. And Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us by your grace. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. All right, so let's remember the context that we're in. Let's remember where we've been the past two weeks as we pick up in mid-story once again here with the life of Jesus. So Jesus has left Galilee. Galilee was the region of northern Israel that was served as his home base of his ministry. It's where his hometown of Nazareth was. It's where he had spent at this point about three years prominently ministering among the people. And he's traveling south headed for Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. Now, as he heads to the south, this is going to be a one-way trip because in Jerusalem, he will be arrested by the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He'll be put on a sham trial. He'll be crucified, buried, and then eventually rise again on the third day. So we are coming to the climax of Matthew's gospel. We're approaching the pinnacle, the peak of the story of who Jesus was and what he came to do. And so as Jesus is on this journey south, we've seen several episodes over the last couple of weeks of what's transpired on the way. And now that journey south is reaching its final stages. Because here in verse 29 of chapter 20, we find that Jesus and the disciples are leaving the city of Jericho. We're getting close to Jerusalem. We're about 15 miles away at this point. So he's going to get to Jerusalem on this same day. This is a journey that was made by travelers quite frequently 
in Jesus's day. In fact, if you know the story of the Good Samaritan, that story takes place about a traveler who's traveling from the, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. So common road used very often in that day, but Jesus's journey is nearing its final approach to its destination. And as usual, Jesus is being followed by a great crowd. There's people all around him pressing in from all sides. That crowd's going to be significant in the second story that we look at this morning. But in the first story, the, the focus actually isn't on the crowd. The focus of this story ends up on two very unlikely people. Right? Verse 29, behold, or verse 30, behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. Matthew chooses to, to zoom the focus of his story, of his gospel, in on these two blind men sitting by the roadside, which would have been a completely unremarkable occurrence in that day. This was where you would usually find blind people, by the roadside at the city gates. Why? Because to be blind in that culture was to be destitute, was to be a beggar. If you were blind, you couldn't work. And unless you had the support of a family, that left you poor, dependent on the charity of other people. And so it was very common in those days to see blind people congregating at the city gates where people would go in and out on the roads from the city and they would be asking, asking for money, asking for charity from passers-by. And so these two blind men are sitting here. They can't see Jesus because they're blind, but obviously they know he's passing by. They hear the commotion of the crowds all around them. And you can imagine, maybe they ask somebody as they, as they walk by, what, what's, what's going on, what's going on? And they say, Jesus is coming. And they've probably heard the stories at this point. They've probably heard about his healings, about the things that he said, the things that he's done in his earthly ministry. And so they decide this is a prime opportunity for us to be made well, to be made whole, Jesus could do this. He could give us our sight back. And so they begin to try to get his attention over this massive crowd that is gathered as they proceed out of the city of Jericho. So they start crying out. They call out to him. When they heard Jesus was passing by, verse 30, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us. But notice how they address him. They address him, son of David. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, we've seen this title pop up a couple times so far in Matthew's gospel. Uh, coincidentally, it popped up from another couple of blind men back in chapter 9 who identified Jesus this way when they were crying out for healing, for mercy from him. So what's the significance? What does this mean? What does it mean to be the son of David? Well, the David in question was King David probably the most famous and revered king in the history of the nation of Israel. He reigned around 1000 BC, so about a thousand years before Christ was born. You've probably heard of him most commonly as the, the guy who defeated the giant Goliath in the battle between uh, the armies of Israel and the Philistines. The story that gets retold just about every time, you probably heard it as a little kid, anytime a underdog beats another big sports team, we talk about a David-Goliath story. This is that David. But David's notable in the Bible for far more than just his defeat of Goliath with the help of his God. David was a warrior, yes. David was also a poet and a king. He was a renaissance man, if you will, a man of many talents and abilities, He's a, one of the greatest kings in, in terms of goodness as a good and benevolent ruler in Israel's history. 
And he's the author of many of the psalms in our Bible. If you read through the book of Psalms, which are songs of praise to God that were used in in worship during the Old Testament time especially, many of them were written by David. So he's a warrior. He's a poet. He's a king. He wasn't perfect. In fact, if we look at the episode in his life with the woman Bathsheba, we see he commits adultery. He sets up a murder, does many shameful things in that whole tragic episode. But another thing we learn about David in his story is his repentance is as fierce as his failures. And God refers to him famously as a man after God's own heart. So this is David. This is the David who is referred to here when they they call Jesus the son of David. So what does the significance have? What ties Jesus to this David who lived a thousand years before? Well, as we read in our scripture reading this morning from 2 Samuel, God made a particular promise to David. David desired to build a temple for God, right? He says, I dwell in a nice palace. But the ark of God, the sign and symbol of God's presence in Israel, was in a tent that had been carried since they left the the slavery in Egypt through the wilderness to their setting up in the promised land. David says, I shouldn't have a nicer house than God does. And so he has this noble desire to build a temple for God. And if you remember back to our scripture reading this morning, God says, hey, I never asked for a house. I'm not ashamed to to have my ark dwell in a tent. And later on, David's son Solomon would be appointed by God to build a temple. But what what God says to David is, actually, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to establish you a kingdom. I'm going to put your descendants on the throne and secure your throne forever. What a crazy promise that God gives to establish David's family, his descendants, their kingdom forever. Now, we might look back and think, well, how did that work out? And even the Israelites during Jesus's day would have wondered the same thing because David's sons did sit on the throne for many generations. Some of them were good kings. Some were terrible kings who rejected God, who rebelled against him, who led Israel to rebel against him. And so God brought judgment through the Assyrians, through the Babylonians, who defeated Israel, deposed David's line of kings, and took the people as captives back to their native land. And when the people returned from their captivity, and they returned to settle in Israel again, there was no new rebirth of David's line sitting on a throne. They were still governed, conquered by foreign powers. And so there's this promise that David's throne would last forever, but the people of Jesus' day would have been thinking, how's that going to work? And God, through his prophets, continued to make promises, even after David's line was deposed, that David's throne would be established forever. And so there was an expectation, because of these promises, because of these prophecies, of a Messiah who would come. The word Messiah means anointed, promised, chosen king, one who God is sending to save his people. And so the people of Jesus' day lived with the expectation of a son of David who would come, one who was literally of David's bloodline, but one who would also inherit David's throne and his kingdom and establish it forever. The people looked forward to this day. Now, they had the wrong expectation of what it was look like, They thought saving would mean driving out their Roman oppressors and setting up a nice political kingdom. But they had this expectation of a son of David who would come, who would save his people, and who would fulfill the promises that God had made to David a thousand years before. 
Now, remember back to how Matthew started his gospel, if you've been here since the beginning. Matthew started his gospel back in chapter 1 with what? A genealogy. And we sit here and we think, it's just a list of names. We kind of get through it really quickly so we can get on to the main part of the story, right? We don't bother with a genealogy very often. But there's a reason that Matthew puts it there. Consider the very first verse, Matthew 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is pointing to the fact that Jesus is the promised son of David. He's the promised savior who is coming. And this is going to get picked up on time and time again in Matthew's gospel by the people who see him. They realize this is who Jesus is. And here, these blind men see it clearly. They look and they see the son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. Interestingly, the religious scholars don't see it. The Pharisees, the scribes, the leaders, the well-to-do, they don't see Jesus as the son of David. They look right through him. They miss it entirely. But two blind men here see clearly. They see clearly who he is, and they cry out to him as such and ask him for mercy, ask him to save an appropriate way, an appropriate thing to ask for when addressing Jesus, the son of David. And so what happens when they cry out to him for mercy to the son of David? The crowd around, how do they respond? Do they usher these guys to the front of the line? Not not so much. The crowd rebukes them. They tell them to be quiet. These guys are getting in the way. They're interrupting important things here. It's always stuck with me. One of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, when talking about this passage, paraphrase what goes on here, and it's always stuck with me. He said, you know, just picture the scene. You've got Jesus. You've got his disciples. They're going around. He's teaching. He's probably healing people, doing important stuff. And here's these blind guys on the side of the road. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And they get louder and louder and they're crying out. And eventually, maybe it's the crowd, maybe it's the disciples, but someone's like, hey, shut up. We're trying to do ministry here. Like, this is the attitude that we see in the disciples time and time again. Like, they can't see the reality in front of their face. They rebuke these guys, tell them to be quiet, get out of the way. Pastor and author Douglas Sean O'Donnell says, this rebuke is a small but symbolically significant action. It's symbolic of the crowd's faith. A faith that likes Jesus as mighty king, but not Jesus as merciful king. A king who came not to be served, but to serve. A king who came to live and die and live again for the least, the outcasts of society, even blind beggars. The crowd doesn't see that. They see Jesus and they they are flocking around him. They believe that he's the Messiah, the king, but they think that's going to be grand, grandiose. They don't have time for blind beggars on the side of the road. They're interrupting the parade. They don't understand that Jesus has come for precisely those people and for people who are like them physically and spiritually. And as a side note, there's a lesson for us here in our temperament as we consider the question of why exactly were they bothered by these guys? I was reading uh, a passage by Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century British preacher, and he asked that question. He's like, I wonder what it was that irritated the crowd so much about these guys. Listen to his quote. He says, did they upbraid them for their ill manners or for the noise or for harshness of tone or for selfishly wanting to monopolize Jesus? 
It is always easy to find a stick when you wish to beat a dog. The point he's making there is the crowd, it's not because of something particular that they did. It's the fact that they were annoyed by their presence. They weren't seeing rightly. They weren't seeing them rightly. They weren't seeing Jesus rightly. And so they'll find some excuse to be upset at them. They'll find some excuse to tell them to be quiet, to sit down. In our dealings with people, are we in the mood to beat a dog and always looking for a stick? Or do we have the kind of compassionate instinct that we see from Jesus here? Because how does Jesus respond? First off, let's see this. As the people cry, the people rebuke the beggars, do they shut them up? Do they sit in the corner? No, they get louder. They cried out all the more, verse 31, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They've probably heard of Jesus' compassion. They figure, we got to ramp it up. This is our one shot. He's leaving. He's going to Jerusalem. We might never have this chance again. They they get louder and louder, and they get Jesus' attention. And notice the difference in Jesus' reaction and the crowd's reaction. Another theme of Matthew's gospel, right? How the crowds, how the disciples respond to situations is usually one way. How Jesus responds is usually something else entirely. Verse 32, and stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So let's note what Jesus does. How does he react? First, he stops, right? The first two words of verse 32, they seem insignificant, but just focus there because a lot of us don't get past those first two words. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, Jesus took the time to take a break from the crowds that were pressing in around him and focus on these two individuals who everybody else was telling to shut up and go away. He took the time. He focused on the insignificant. He stopped allowing them to take priority over all the important things he no doubt had to do. He stops and then he asks, what do you want me to do for you? He asks them a question. He wants to find out what these two men have to say, why it is they're crying out. He listens to their requests. They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Jesus has time to ask. Jesus has time to listen. And then he acts. He heals them. Jesus in pity. That word for pity is the same as the word for compassion. He feels for them. He cares for them. And so he touches their eyes and he restores their sight. Immediately they recovered their sight. Jesus' reaction to two guys the rest of the world sees as insignificant, as an interruption, as a nuisance to be put away, Jesus' reaction is to stop, to ask, to listen, to act. Stop, ask, listen, act. We would do well to remember those things as we do ministry today as Jesus' followers. Both in the corporate sense, as we do ministry as a church, but then for us as individuals, as we encounter people, who are on the margins, who are in need of help, who are in need of Christ. Stop, ask, listen, act. As we've seen countless times now in Matthew's gospel, Jesus performs a miraculous act that confirms his identity as the son of David. These blind men are asking Jesus to do something 
that only God can do, that only the promised son of David could possibly do. It was interesting, as I was reading and studying for this sermon and reading a few different commentaries, one commentator pointed out, you know how many times the Old Testament prophets heal blindness? Zero. You know how many times the disciples and apostles hear blindness or heal blindness? Zero. Jesus does this. We see miracles happen through the prophets. We see miracles happen through the apostles. But what these men are asking Jesus to do is something that is unique in Scripture to only God doing, opening blind eyes and giving sight. And they ask Jesus for it as the son of David. And the son of David does it. They ask him to do what only God can do. And he did. He confirms his identity through his actions. And what do the blind men do in response? They follow Jesus. He touched their eyes. Immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Who knows? When we see the crowd in the next story shouting Jesus' praise, these two guys might just be among the ones leading the charge. A couple of guys who the crowd thought was insignificant wanted to shut up and go away. Jesus takes the time, stops, asks, listens, acts. And because of that, they are healed. They're brought into the fold of followers, the fold of disciples. These two blind guys see Jesus more clearly than the crowd all around. But in verse 21, the procession has left Jericho. These blind guys have now joined the crowd, and the procession now has arrived at the gates of Jerusalem. Jesus and the throng of largely Galilean pilgrims with him are coming to Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. It's an interesting thing to consider as we look at this this story that we've called many times the triumphal entry into Jerusalem that gets celebrated on what often gets called Palm Sunday. It can be a familiar story to us in the church, but it's important to note that this crowd, even though this takes place in Jerusalem, the crowd around Jesus here is not largely a crowd of people from Jerusalem. When the Passover feast happened, people from all over Israel would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover together. That's why Jesus is coming to Jerusalem here from an earthly perspective. And so this crowd that's following him from Jericho are people who have probably followed him in many cases all the way from Nazareth, all the way from Galilee. So we have these pilgrims coming with Jesus, arriving at the gates of Jerusalem. And while it was the blind guys that saw him clearly for who he really was at Jericho, Here, Jesus' identity is going to be proclaimed and shown for all to see more clearly and more publicly than it ever has been so far. When they drew near to Jerusalem and came near to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So they draw near, and Jesus gives an odd request to his disciples. Go get a donkey and its young colt and bring them here. And they do what Jesus asked them to, and they bring the donkey and the young colt. Why? What's going on here? Well, Matthew tells us in verse 4, this took place to fulfill a prophecy. What was spoken by the prophet? In this case, the prophet Zechariah, saying, 
Say to the daughter of Zion, verse 5, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Matthew quotes here from Isaiah 62, 11, and then mainly Zechariah 9, 9. That first bit on, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. That's from Isaiah 62. The last part of the verse is the promise of the colt and the donkey is from Zechariah chapter 9. So Matthew quotes from these two Old Testament passages about Messiah, about the promised son of David. And he puts them together and focuses our attention and the attention of his readers on this promise in Zechariah. Now, if we were to go back to Zechariah 9 and read the bulk of that chapter, it's full of high and lofty language, promising this coming king, the son of David, the savior who would come and save and restore. It's beautiful, powerful, regal stuff, except for this little detail about a donkey, which quite frankly seems absolutely ridiculous. Now to us, I mean, it's an animal and they had animals back then. So of course, you you ride donkeys, great, right? But we're not seeing this like they would have seen this. Kings don't ride donkeys, right? Donkeys are not regal animals. I don't know how many donkeys you've seen, but when you look at a donkey and you hear a donkey, you don't think that's a magnificent creature. They're kind of small, they're dirty, they sound weird, you know, they don't look like, you, you know, they don't look like a war horse, right? Kings ride war horses. They ride proud, beautiful horses. You watch the Kentucky Derby and you see those animals, you think, those are gorgeous animals. You don't ever look at a donkey and think, that's a gorgeous animal. But Jesus, this promised king from Zechariah, is going to be riding a donkey. The image of a king on a donkey would be about like the president coming to town and riding in a parade down the street on a tricycle, right? This is just silly visual. It's silly language. But this is what's promised. Douglas Sean O'Donnell explains it this way. He says, in contrast with the arrogance and violence usually associated with earthly kings, this king, we're told, will be poor and afflicted. He'll be a sovereign lord and yet a suffering servant. This donkey says something about what the son of David is going to be like. He's not going to be like the normal kings. He's not going to be like the expected kings. The disciples go, they do as Jesus instructs them, and the scene is set for Jesus to enter the city on this young donkey, on this humble mount. So we clearly see Jesus' humility here. But I don't want you to miss something else that we see here. Look at what happens. Look at how Jesus sends the disciples, has them get the donkey, bring the donkey. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is intentionally setting out to fulfill messianic prophecy. Jesus knows the scriptural promise. He's getting the donkey for that purpose. So he's showing his humility by by what he's riding on, but he's also proclaiming his glory. Because by getting on this donkey and riding in this procession into Jerusalem, Jesus is saying, I am the son of David. I am who that scripture is about. I am the Messiah. We saw in the last story that Jesus confounds the expectations of those who want a great God and mighty king, but have no regard for the poor or the outcast. Here, we're reminded he also confounds those who want a good teacher who loves the outcast, but not a sovereign Lord and king. He's proclaiming himself to be both 
here riding into the city on this donkey. And presented with this picture, the crowd that had been following Jesus responds appropriately, erupting into a procession of joy and praise. Verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And they went before him, and all that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Right? And what they're doing, you know, it sounds kind of weird. Like if you were to see someone famous coming, you wouldn't like take off your shirt and put it on the road or go cut down some shrubbery. But what they're doing here is the way that you honored a conquering king or general. This is a royal procession. So by taking off their cloaks, by lining the street in front of Jesus as he rides, they're paying the same kind of homage to him as they would pay to a king or to a visiting Roman noble or general. They are saying, this Jesus is king. This is the son of David. This is the one, the promised one. They're greeting Jesus as their Lord and king. And as he passes, what do they shout? They shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, Hosanna isn't really a word that we use anymore, unless we're talking about the name of a certain someone who's sitting on the back row, right? But outside of it being someone's name, we don't really say that word much. So what does it mean? Why do they say Hosanna here? Well, the word means in the Hebrew, please save or save now. It's a cry out to God to save It's an emotional exclamation. What they're saying here when they say Hosanna to the son of David is save us, promised king, right? Restore us, please, God, see, save. It's a cry for help, an expression of need. So take note of what they express in their words here. Hosanna to the son of David. They cry to Jesus to save them. They identify him as the son of David, the promised Messiah and king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. A blessing on the one who comes in God's very name. God's chosen, anointed king. Hosanna in the highest. God, please come and save. Fourth century church father Hilary of Poitiers said, Hosanna in the Hebrew signifies the redemption of the house of David. They are calling upon the son of David. They are celebrating the inheritance of the eternal kingdom. These people are doing what they're doing because they're saying, the time has come. He's here. The son of David has arrived. Now everyone can see clearly because the sun is shining brightly for all to see. Before it was just the two blind guys that picked up on who he really is. Now Jesus is proclaiming it. He's setting things up in the way he rides into town so that people will connect the dots and see this is who he says he is. He's the promised one. Word begins to spread through the city, right? Verse 10, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Remember, these are largely pilgrims, followers who have come down from Galilee, picked up in Jericho that are celebrating in this way. So if you're somebody who lives in Jerusalem, And everybody's worked up into a frenzy. You hear the news start traveling and you think, who's this guy? What's this all about? And the crowd answers correctly, if incompletely, right? What do they say? This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It's a good time to note that 
even now they don't fully grasp, right? They see clearly and they understand this is the son of David and they proclaim him rightly, but they don't fully understand what he's going to do. They don't fully understand what the son of David has come to accomplish. They see him as the prophet Jesus from Nazareth who's come in, the son of David, the promised king, but they don't understand his true purpose or his true mission. Why can we say that? Because what's going to happen in a week? They're going to be scattered, stunned, when this same Jesus is arrested and executed. They understood that Jesus was coming in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. But they didn't understand that he was also coming in fulfillment of Isaiah 53. They didn't understand fully what his saving mission was going to entail. Isaiah 53 promised he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. They saw a coming, conquering king. They saw the promised son of David. They didn't see that the coming king was the suffering servant. They didn't realize that Jesus came not to set up a nice political kingdom that would solve all their problems, but to save their souls from their sins, to take on the punishment on himself that they deserved. They came to the city to celebrate the Passover, but they didn't realize that Jesus would be the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover lamb killed to protect people from God's divine judgment. What was the Passover, right? None of us in this room are Jewish, so I I don't think we regularly celebrate the Passover, although you may have been to a ceremony. I've, I've been a couple times to Passover observances and celebrations. What was the Passover? The Passover came from the people of Israel leaving slavery in Egypt, right? If, if you think back to that story of the ten plagues, let my people go, Moses is taking the people out. What's the final plague? The final plague on Egypt, when Pharaoh would not listen to God's word in any of the other nine, the tenth plague is God is going to kill all of the firstborn males in the city of Egypt. Death and suffering on a massive scale. But he tells the people of Israel to sacrifice a lamb, to eat it in this feast in celebration of God's deliverance, and to take the blood of this lamb and spread it on their doorpost as a sign that God would, when he visited Egypt in judgment, he would pass over them. That's where the word comes from. Exodus 12, verses 12 and 13. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. They're gathering in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, this great deliverance that God did, not understanding Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the great Passover Lamb. He will be killed and his blood, when God sees it applied to our hearts, not our doorposts, when God sees it applies to our hearts, he'll pass over us in judgment not bringing the death and suffering that we deserve for our sins, for our rejection of him, for our selfishness, 
for our doing what we want rather than what God has said is good and right. They come to celebrate the Passover. They don't realize that the one who is riding on the donkey will be the Passover lamb for their hearts, for their souls. So we have two blind men who see. Then we have the sun shining brightly for all to see. But even in their seeing, there's still a piece that they're not getting. But it's a piece that we on the other side of the cross now understand in full. What they were glimpsing, grabbing, we now have plainly and gloriously revealed to us. So the question for us this morning from these two texts, can you see the son of David? Can you see the son of David? Can you see his significance? Can you see him like the blind men? Faith that he can save, that he has compassion, that you have to get to him. Or do you see him like the crowd did? Seemingly religious, focused, maybe even focused on Jesus, but blind to the little people, to the unimportant, to the outcasts who are around, blind to the very people that Jesus focuses his attention on. Can you see him like the crowd at the Jerusalem gates? Understanding he comes as a humble and lowly servant, but also a conquering king who demands your allegiance. Do you see both sides of that coin? Or are you tempted to see him only as one and not the other? To have an incomplete view of who he is, of what he came to do. And can you see what the crowd missed? Can you see what the crowd missed, but that we now have clearly explained to us that Jesus came to suffer and die in your place to save you from the sin, guilt, and shame that you carry with you from your failures, your shortcomings, your mistakes, your rebellion against God? Have you trusted him to take it away? Just as the Israelites trusted that when they put the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorpost, God would not visit them in judgment. Have you trusted that in Christ, in his blood, in his resurrection, God won't visit you in judgment? Have you trusted him to take your sin, shame, and guilt away? And are you trusting him today? Is that faith and trust something you say, oh, I did 10 years ago, but it doesn't have a bearing on your life today? It's a continual process of trusting in Christ. Maybe you're here or you're watching this morning and you say, I, I don't, it sounds good. I don't know what that means. How do I go about doing that? We'd love to, to talk to you about that, to explain what it means to trust Christ, what it means to see him in this way, in a way even beyond what the crowds around him at the triumphal entry saw. If you've got questions, talk to myself, one of the other pastors. Send us a message at elders at trinitycrestwood.com or a Facebook message. We'd love to talk to you about why this matters so much and how this trust can transform everything about your life. You're good, you're bad, and everything in between. But that's our question this morning. Can you see the son of David? A lot of people saw him in a lot of different ways in the text we look at this morning. Where would you fit in that crowd? And where do you need your vision, your seeing, to be changed to see him rightly and to respond rightly in the way that you live? Let's pray.